This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It had no organized opposition, but Amendment T found opposition on Election Day. The ballot measure would have eliminated slavery entirely from Colorado's Constitution. The final vote was close, and more than a week after the election, it was called. Voters rejected the measure. There are a couple of theories as to why. Will Dickerson is with the Denver nonprofit Together Colorado. He helped lead the Yes on T campaign. And a will welcome back. Hey, thank you. Briefly, remind us why there's a mention of legal slavery at all in Colorado's Constitution. Oh, yes. Um, that's easy. Uh, just particularly because it's in the national constitution um, and uh, it was adopted. The language was adopted because of what was written in the, the national constitution. All right. So the state constitution reflecting something federally. What went through your mind when you heard T had been rejected some days after the election? Yeah, um, I was I went through a few emotions. I think I was um, a little hurt and upset. Um, that it didn't pass. I think that um, I was also, you know, I, at first I got angry about it. Like, um, I just felt like, you know, why why didn't this, like, pass? Why This was supposed to be an easy vote, you know? Um, and so I went through, like, a, a few different things, and now I'm at the space now where I'm just like, hey, ready to get back on board and try and figure out how to get it passed. Democratic State Representative Javon Melton of Aurora was one of the ballot measure's supporters. He said the effort could indeed be revived in two years. I think what would need to be done, though, in 2018 is a much more rigorous education and make sure that people understand it, or we need to revisit the language and see if there's a way to make it less confusing to the voter. Okay, a few things to unpack there. First, that the language was confusing. What do you make of that? Um every person that I talked to said that that very thing. Um, so all of my friends and family and uh, the members that are a part of Together Colorado, um, as soon as the um, the, uh, the the ballots dropped, the, their first reaction was that they were calling me saying, this is really confusing and I need to know, can you remind me if I'm supposed to vote yes or no? Right, because a yes vote was no to slavery in, right. in, in, in some regards. Right. Yeah. We put this question to our listeners. Uh, why did you vote the way you did? Brian Veach of Aurora emailed us and said he thought the language was not clear. Lori Ward of Loveland tweeted that she felt the language was confusing. What more do you think you could have done to get the word out that a yes vote would have struck the exception? Yeah, I've been reflecting on that as well. I, You know... If we would have had a, a much larger campaign <laughs> in terms of money wise, I think we would have been able to get, you know, TV ads out um, and, you know, more radio ads and things like that for, for folks to uh, to be able to see um, and to understand and to educate people around the issue itself. And what about the, the language on the ballot? I know that there's a lot that goes into that. This was a referred measure from the legislature. But do you think that could be improved in some regard in a future iteration? Yeah. So, yes, I think that it could be improved. How is I mean, one of the things that I've been really struggling with is that um, the ballot itself is is somewhat inaccessible for for most people because of the way in which most of our uh, ballot initiatives and things are written. They can be fairly confusing. And this one being especially confusing because it's a voting a yes 
so that you can vote no to slavery, which is, I, I think that we have to figure out a way to make the language more accessible. In more general, people. you're saying? Yep. We can't definitively know how many people found the language confusing, and there are voters who intentionally voted no, like Greg Wilden of Arvada. He emailed us, quote, I am in favor of community service as restitution for some crimes, and the wording of the ballot measure appeared to indicate that that type of punishment would become unconstitutional. He was not the only listener who shared that concern. Mm -hmm. This is that idea that there is potentially a connection between slavery and, you know, prison work programs. Uh, Can you address that? Yes. So we had this conversation when we were working on, you know, putting the language together for the blue book. And so, you know, folks on on both sides of the, the issue were supposed to come in. There, of course, was no formal opposition. And so... The what was written in the blue book wasn't actually um, the truth about what this could possibly do. Um, I'll say that the Colorado Department of Corrections says that their work programs are all voluntary. Yeah, exactly. So we were trying to remove the exception for slavery and involuntary servitude. Um, and so any any of the work programs that you have, you have a choice between whether or not you want to do community service or spend, you know, a few months in jail or um, going to prison or um, when you're in prison, you have a, a choice on whether or not you want to do this work or that work or work at all. Um, that th- All of these things are voluntary um, institutions that we've created. This is about making sure that the language um, itself and the opportunity um, for people to uh, enslave folks through this, uh, th- uh, using the argument of the Constitution, um, cannot be used a- under any circumstances. I'd like to read an excerpt from a letter published in the Denver Post opinion section. This Lakewood resident, David Landis, wrote, I voted to keep the slavery language in Colorado's Constitution because it keeps us humble by reminding us of the evil we humans are capable of. Just as the Nazi concentration camps remind us of the evil and horror of genocide. And he went on to write, erasing the past only increases the likelihood of repeating it. What are your thoughts of of keeping the language um, as a reminder in some ways of the past? Yeah, that's a very interesting statement. I think that the the way I interpret that is that the person misunderstands what the intention of removing the exception for slavery was as opposed to removing language of slavery. So um, I think that keeping in the Constitution that there shall neither be slavery nor involuntary servitude is enough reminder of, of the of past. Our past. Exactly. That, that it had existed before. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you will press on and move to strike this language again. Yeah, I mean, the the sh- the... The mediocre short answer <laughs> is uh, that we're working right now to start having conversations with our leaders and our members of Together Colorado to see if that's what they want to do. And we're wanting to build, you know, coalition with uh, with a much larger group of folks so that we can really get this information out. And wouldn't it be more difficult than to get on the ballot now that that ballot access amendment passed? In other words, you'd have to have quite a ground game. Yes. The next time. Yep. It will be more difficult. And I also believe that we will be able to educate people in a much stronger way. Thank you for being with us. Thank you.
Will Dickerson is with the Denver nonprofit Together Colorado. He helped lead the Yes on Tea campaign in support of removing an exception to slavery from Colorado's Constitution. That measure failed. Coming up, essays by physicians about patients they can't forget. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The first child diagnosed with AIDS in Colorado is still alive today. And one of his physicians, Dr. Harley Rotbar, thinks that's miraculous. He includes this story in a new collection called Miracles We Have Seen. America's leading physicians share stories they can't forget. Dr. Rotbart's here in the studio with me. We're also joined by another doc who contributed to the book, Dan Hyman. Both men are pediatricians affiliated with the University of Colorado and Children's Hospital Colorado. And uh, gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. So, Dr. Rotbart, take us back to 1985 when you were asked to evaluate a two-year-old named Jonathan who just couldn't shake a case of pneumonia. I was finishing the training uh, in infectious diseases as a fellow at Children's Hospital and University. And this little boy had a persistent pneumonia that had been there for months and um, should have gone away long before. And I was sure this was not an infectious disease and that they had called the wrong specialist. Um, When we saw him, we ran all the tests. We scratched our heads citywide and um, decided that the only way to decide what this was was by undergoing a lung biopsy, by his undergoing a lung biopsy. And we did that, and the um, pathology, the diagnosis from the lung biopsy stunned us. This was um, confirmed that this little boy had the first case of AIDS in the state of Colorado in a child. And that was then certainly a terminal diagnosis. I mean, I can't help but think in contrast to Ryan White, the young man who contracted the virus and, you know, who really taught the country that it was okay to even touch someone with AIDS. White died in 1990, a month before graduating high school. So that's just the perspective of the fact that Jonathan from Colorado remains alive. How, how did he contract the disease? He was born as a tiny premature baby and required multiple transfusions, blood transfusions. He was born on March 19th, 1983, and the warning from the U.S. Public Health Service about high-risk donors not donating blood because the first case of blood-transmitted AIDS had been reported a few months earlier came simultaneously with Jonathan being born, but the blood supply had already been severely contaminated. Jonathan received lots of contaminated blood, presumably, and became infected as a newborn. Are you in touch with him today? I spoke with him by phone last week, and he is 33 years old, is about to acquire his third restaurant that he runs with his brother in Utah. He has a 12-year-old child. He is grateful for a life that most people would be horrified to consider having lived, and it is a joy um, to tell his story. I want to meditate a bit on the idea of a miracle with you in in, in just a moment. But Dr. Hyman, I want to talk about your contribution to the book. Um, tell us about the patient you wrote about, Melody. Sure. The essay that I wrote was about 
a girl named Melody. When I met Melody, she was one year old. She has a condition called trisomy 18, which is a genetic uh, abnormality. We often in pediatrics think about it as being a condition that uh, children can't survive with. And Melody was actually admitted to our hospital uh, just after I had gotten back from being with my mom when she had died. And I was asked to do something that I very rarely am asked to do as an inpatient pediatrician on a general medical service, which was to provide end-of-life care. And I said I would be, um, of course, I would do that. But when I met this family and I met Melody and saw her condition, uh, we had a very different conversation than I expected to have when I went into her room. Uh, I had gone in thinking I was going to ask the family to sign an order, uh, let me sign an order that we would not resuscitate Melody. And instead, we had a conversation that resulted in our deciding to provide her some additional support. Uh, she survived her respiratory infection and now, uh, two and a half years later, is still alive at the age of three and a half, which is really quite remarkable. Quite remarkable. Um, an outcome that, what, you've not seen elsewhere in your career? Put it into context for us. Well, I have not. Um, the statistics say that only about 10% of children born with trisomy 18 will survive to their first birthday, and then the numbers diminish from there. Uh, but I uh, had been trained in a way that we thought about this as a condition and often used language that I've come to realize is really not sensitive and say that it, the condition is not compatible with life. And that's just not a true statement. And I learned that from Melody and her family. And what of Melody today? Well, she's three and a half now. Uh, she does have developmental delays, as all children with trisomy 18 do. But this little girl, when I met her, it was very clear that she was the uh, a source of tremendous joy and love for her family. She has, I think, four siblings, and their lives really revolve around her, her community. Uh, they're very active in their church. Uh, her, their community is very involved in support for Melody, and they're just an amazing family that I was so grateful to have had the opportunity to care for and support uh, through Melody's illness. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the new collection of essays, Miracles We Have Seen. America's leading physicians share stories they can't forget. Dr. Harley Rothbard uh, put this together, and we're speaking with him and one of the contributors Dr. Dan Hyman, uh, both affiliated with the University of Colorado and Children's Hospital Colorado. And to this idea of miracles, Dr. Rothbard, why, why call them that? Uh, I'm thinking you're, you're a scientist. You deal so much in the realm of evidence, of proof, and you can't prove a miracle. You clearly can't prove a miracle. And um, to use any other descriptor, then the word miracle would have taken paragraphs because, in fact, the um, spectrum of stories told in this book range from a man who survived a fall from a window washing platform on the 47th story of a Manhattan skyscraper and is now taking, driving his kids to school in Arizona and doing charity walks, 47-story fall, free fall onto a cement alleyway in Manhattan, to stories like Dr. Hyman's that he just told of, of 
babies who survive beyond what they could possibly have been expected to survive. And then we include stories that are more emotional um, epiphanies than they are physical miracles, stories of resilience and forgiveness and compassion that come out in the lives of physicians that demonstrate not only the the slogan that I've developed for this collection, and that is that oftentimes what we don't understand exceeds what we do understand, but proves that what we don't understand isn't necessarily cause for fear, can be reason for hope. And the hope that comes out in the essays in this book, the humanity of the physicians that emerges, um, is miraculous. Dan, how do you feel about that word, miracle? I mean, isn't isn't a miracle in some ways just a medical outcome you didn't anticipate? Well, <laughs> I, I, being as you described in your question, evidence based and scientific, uh, have trouble thinking about miracles. And I wouldn't say it's a miracle that Melody survived the illness. I do think that it is incredible that I was the physician who had just experienced what I'd experienced in my personal life and was dealing with the decision about when to um, think about stopping support for this child, that the fact that we found ourselves together in that room at that time was incredible. And the family describes it, I think the word that they use is providential. And so that was for me why when Harley asked me if there was any patient story that I might think about writing for this book, and I'd given a little bit of thought that I thought that that was what was miraculous about this situation. Right. Plus you, the fact that Melody is a, has just you know, lived much longer than anyone would have expected her to and does much more than anyone had told the family she'd be able to do. Yeah, you had been dealing with your own personal loss at this time. That's correct. Were there doctors who said, um, when you asked them to contribute, Dr. Rothbard, who said, uh, no, I don't believe in miracles or I don't have anything that jumps to mind that you're talking about? That was one of the most interesting aspects of this uh, project, Ryan, was the responses by the physicians. They broke down about one-third, one-third, one-third. About a third of colleagues that I asked from around the country, and I, and I spoke with hundreds of fellow physicians, um, and these are deans and department heads and professors at the leading medical schools in the country. About a third of them said, uh, thanks, nice to hear from you, but I really, I don't think I have a story that fits your criteria. Um, a, a, another third said, really good idea. Uh, let me think about it. I'll get back with you if something comes to mind. And for the most part, n- nothing came to mind. But it's the final third um, of physicians that I asked who said, oh, my goodness, I have a story that I've been waiting to tell. Thank you for asking. I can't wait to write this essay. And it's that one-third of responses that um, make up the 85 miracle stories in the book. I think that the the word miracle naturally leads to the question of, of the divine. Um, and, you know, that, too, can be a tricky question when you're looking at science in contrast. Uh, and, and those aren't necessarily opposed, but can be. Um, as you were writing your essay, Dan, uh, to what extent did you think of the divine, if at all? Um, I didn't really think about it too much. I, I do love one of the hospitals uh, in the country talks about 
uh, physicians doing the healing work of God. And whether you believe of that, believe in that, and that's a, an important part of your faith, I think is less important than the fact that we are so privileged in our profession. Uh, one of my mentors, Don Berwick, says that we are guests in our patients' lives. And I think if we act that way and we do our best for patients and families, that that's what we're on this earth to do. And uh, I, I don't think that has to come from a faith-based place, but for many of us, it does. I was interested, Dan, in how you said the experience with Melody changed how you talk about possible outcomes for patients. That it taught you, despite everyone's expectations, that that child would not live. She did. And so that change, that changes how you talk about outcomes. Absolutely. Uh, I had many conversations with Melody's family uh, after all of this happened, where they taught me so much about the language that people use in healthcare and how insensitive it feels to them and to the community of patients and families, in this case with trisomy 18. But I think that's true uh, more generally in healthcare that we uh, have to always be so respectful of the patients and families that we care for and recognize that, as I said, we are guests in their lives and we're there to help them. And uh, you know, there's language that you still periodically hear, you know, I'm going to go see the diabetic in room 15. I mean, that's dehumanizing. And the language that Melody's family heard about their daughter having a condition incompatible with life, she disproves every day. And so I think that we need to understand that and do a better job teaching it to our students and our trainees and to ourselves. Dr. Rothbart, leave us with one more story that surprised you. There are so many. Uh, a personal story was of a, uh, two boys, brothers. Uh, the younger boy fell into a swimming pool. Um, this happened in Philadelphia. I was a resident at Children's Hospital there. And um, the older boy jumped in to save his big brother. Both were his little brother. Both were overcome by the cold. By the time fire rescue got there, they were blue, unconscious, unresponsive. The little boy that uh, was saved uh, pushed to the stairs to so he could breathe. He recovered quickly, but the hero, the seven-year-old big brother, uh, did not. He was in coma for weeks. We were discussing brain death protocols. We were discussing organ donation with the family. Mm. Um, I was reading to the little boy one night as we, the residents did. I was holding his hand, and I felt him squeeze my hand. It was the first um, movement that we could attribute uh, in weeks. And um, uh, everyone thought it was sort of a spontaneous muscle contraction, but then someone else felt it the next day, and then he was doing it on command. Uh, a couple of weeks later, he walked out of the hospital, uh, on, went on to a completely normal neurologic recovery, this little boy that we had been discussing, brain death protocols and organ donation. And as with Dan, as with Dr. Hyman's story, this story changed my life. It changed the way I saw the certainty or the lack thereof in medicine. And um, <clears throat> it, was, um, it was a very powerful moment for me. Do you often read to patients? Uh, we did, as, certainly as trainees. As a subspecialist later in my career, I unfortunately had to give up some of that um, for, <laughs> to expedite care. Um, but that intimate contact um, with patients is the best part of what we do. That is Dr. Harley Rotbot, 
Bart, pardon me, who put together the new book, Miracles We Have Seen, America's Leading Physicians Share Stories They Can't Forget. He's Professor and Vice Chair Emeritus of Pediatrics at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and Children's Hospital Colorado. Dr. Dan Hyman contributed to the book. He's an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at CU. You can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Next into the tank is first aid for our beloved tech devices. A Colorado entrepreneur thinks he has a solution for your soggy cell phone or iPad. And he pitched it recently on the TV show Shark Tank. This toilet stands before you today guilty of a terrible crime. (laughs) Murder. That's right. This porcelain perpetrator is the number one reason people lose phones to water damage. Uh, It doesn't (laughs) stop there. Adam Cookson, along with his business partners, invented a dryer that revives waterlogged electronics. And this month, staple stores across the country started carrying the invention. Cookson is CEO of the Denver-based startup TechDry. He joins my colleague, Andrea Dukakis. Adam, welcome. Thank you, Andrea. It's such a pleasure to be here. So the way Shark Tank works, the judges can choose individually to invest in your product if they want to, and you were able to make a deal. What did you get? Well, Kevin uh, O'Leary offered us five hundred thousand uh, a loan for thirteen percent. He's a Canadian investor. He's also a Canadian investor, and uh, you know it's funny. A lot of the segments uh, that we taped actually didn't show, but we had an interesting conversation about the fact that I was from Canada, and so was he. So it was a bit of a funny moment, and uh, yeah, so five hundred thousand, thirteen percent interest, five percent warrant. Um, and uh, in addition to that, he's been very helpful with the Staples relationship, and, and just being on the show has been incredibly helpful as well. We'll talk about that in a bit, but um, what prompted you to create a device that dries electronics? Well, it really came out of a project at uh, the University of Denver's Executive MBA program. That's where myself and my co-founders met, and uh, there was an innovation class, and one of the team came up with the basic idea I have an engineering background and helped flesh out the design and, and getting the work on the patent and, and so forth. And we just kept coming back to it as a school project. And eventually, you know, after we saw that the science worked, uh, we had some really exciting experiences actually drying people's phones and the, the emotion that that created and uh, decided to jump into it as a business after school. How does it work? Well, it, it basically, uh, if, if you uh, think of how you boil an egg here in Denver, it takes longer because water boils at a, a lower temperature when there's lower air pressure. And if you take that to its extreme, you can boil water at room temperature or below. Uh, however, when you do that, it also chills it and can make ice instead of water. So what our machine does is it pulls all the air out of a chamber. So you put the phone in. And it's surrounded by these special metallic beads, and the beads provide a gentle heat, and that stops it from making an ice cube, so it keeps the water just turning straight into gas. So within minutes, all the water down to a molecular level is gone from the phone or tablet or laptop or whatever you put in there. And what kind of devices can it dry, say, other than a cell phone or an iPad? Yeah, it's basically anything that fits in the chamber. I mean, the the bulk of what we rescue are phones, but we've also done tablets, laptops. We did an insulin pump once. Uh, We've done key fobs. Um, Anything electronic with a battery uh, that's portable basically can go in the device. 
And what does it look like? Um, it kind of looks like an old-fashioned, the, the one we have right now is like an old-fashioned cash register. If you could imagine something about two foot cubed, it has a screen, it has a door, you open the door and it's full of beads, these little, looks like ball bearings inside, and you immerse the device, the phone, uh, into it, uh, into the, and you close the door and hit the button. And um, so I drop my cell phone in the toilet. How quickly do I have to get it to your dryer? Well, it's actually, that's kind of the secret, is you've got a little bit more time than you might think as long as you do the right things. Like, don't plug it in when it's wet. Forget rice, that's for eating. Um, there's lots of crazy do-it-yourself remedies on the Internet that don't work. If all you do is power it down and don't mess with it and then get it to us within a couple of days is fine. Uh, the sooner the better. The highest chances are, you know, just get in your car and drive to Staples and, and take it to our machine. And that's why we've looked at putting uh, as many locations nationwide as possible to make it convenient for people to do that. At some point, is this something we're going to buy and, and take home uh, or we actually, you know. yeah, we actually started out trying to make a consumer device. Think of something like a, you know, a Keurig coffee maker style machine. We're just not there yet. The the cost and the engineering involved in that and the mass production that would be required didn't really fit our model. So we started with putting it where people can get to it fast. So how much does it cost for you to make and then for a consumer to go out and dry their phone? Yeah, it's a risk-free model. So if it doesn't come back fully, you don't pay anything. Uh, for something like a key fob or flip phone, 40 bucks. A phone is 70 and a laptop's 100 and some phones out are now waterproof. Um, are you too late with this invention? <laughs> I get this question a lot. You know, there's a lot of consumer confusion about water resistance. It's water resistance, not waterproofing. We fix phones every day that go into situations that this wouldn't have saved, like like uh, washing machines, for example. That that goes well beyond what the, the water resistance on phones will protect. Mm -hmm. So we'll still have a need for this. Yeah, there's also 7 billion handsets, phones already on the planet. Um, sales of new smartphones are starting to taper as people don't see the need for the new features. And I think we've got a very long runway with uh, phones to fix. And Staples believes that, and other retailers believe that as well. What about other uses for the technology? There's some pretty exciting stuff in the medical field. Um, we've had a team working on looking at... Uh, uh, drying and sterilizing of medical devices. You know, there's been cases in California in recent months where people died from like duodenoscopes that were improperly sterilized, and our technology can help with that in a big way. So that's probably the next thing we're into. What about electronics manufacturers? Are they going to be frustrated because folks aren't going to have to replace their phones as often? Well, you know, it's funny. Apple has a, a support page. If you were to Google an Apple support pages for the iPhone 7 water resistance, there's a whole list of things that they don't want you to do with that phone. I think what they're starting to understand is there's a customer relations issue. And they're, they're all about a great customer experience. And that's what we help with is people come into the store mad with a wet phone. We can help them leave, ha help them leave happily thrilled that their device is back. And that's, a, that's an experience. The, the the retail partner can own. What's your next invention? Oh boy, um, this this technology we've got we've got it patented. It's broad. There's lots of applications. We've got a list of things even after medical. So I think there's a lot of runway on this one before we get into into what's next after that. Adam, thanks so much for being with us. Andrea, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. Adam Cookson is CEO of Denver-based TechDry. He spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis about a new technology that rescues wet electronics. Staples stores have picked it up. <music> C 
Seniors are vulnerable to financial scams. According to one recent study, 40% of caregivers said a client of theirs was the victim of financial abuse more than once. That's a sharp rise from just two years prior. But as CPR's health reporter John Daly explains, Colorado has launched a new program to prevent this type of crime with help from the very people who manage seniors' money. As Colorado's senior population grows, so do the numbers of financial exploitation crimes against them. One victim was Mardell Sanders, who's in her 80s. Uh, how old? 82, I think. 84. Janice says I'm 84. <laughs> I'm up there anyway. I spoke to Sanders and her daughter Janice from her home in Montrose. A few years back, Sanders made a considerable amount of money in a real estate deal. Soon, her daughter says Sanders started getting cold calls at home from some guys offering can't-miss investment opportunities. Janice says the men had personal information and used it to gain her mom's trust. Well, they would call her and just, you know, chat her up, talk to her about her dying grandson. They knew information, and they tried to befriend her. You know, how's Johnny today? How's Johnny? Oh, well, that's too bad. You know, well, with this money, you know, you can make a lot and you can help him. They convinced her to send tens of thousands of dollars to invest in firms allegedly doing business in oil and gas and plastic surgery. Sanders said it sounded like a good deal. I was making money and I wanted to put it somewhere, you know, where I'd be making more money, actually. So it's as much my fault as it is theirs. Within a couple of years, Sanders had sunk roughly $125,000 into investments government regulators later determined were scams. She tells me at the time she had no idea. What made you uh, think that these guys were trustworthy? I don't know. I don't know because they said they were, I guess. The state's Division of Securities has a new program called Senior Safe to prevent their financial exploitation. The division's Jill Sarmo says Colorado is one of a number of states to adopt it. I think the biggest push right now is to really prevent the problem before it happens. What's new here is the target audience, people in the financial industry, tellers, brokers, investment advisors, and institutions. A 2010 study found about 20 percent of U.S. seniors had been taken advantage of financially. And Sarmo says those over 65 own over half of all the assets in the country. That just creates a huge target. Sarmo recently delivered a training presentation to half a dozen employees of a credit union in Commerce City. You're in a great position to recognize financial exploitation or abuse. She told them how to recognize and report red flags like sudden significant withdrawals or attempts to wire large sums of money. Heather LaCrue works at the credit union She thinks seniors are targeted more often. They're just so trusting, and if somebody needs help, they're there. Okay, I have the money. I'll help you. LaCrue recently uncovered a $10,000 scam involving a man selling a car on Craigslist. It unraveled when she spotted what turned out to be a fraudulent check. It was, truthfully, for me, heartwarming because I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, I hope if that were to ever happen to me, somebody would do that for me. In the case of Mardell Sanders, no one knew she was being exploited until a check she wrote for a granddaughter's graduation bounced. Then her family swept into action, poring over bank statements and receipts, researching her transactions. They got the state's Division of Securities to investigate. Both Sanders and her daughter Janice think educating financial institutions is a good idea. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, if we can get people like that to get on board and just kind of keep an eye on suspicious behavior like this. 
Eventually, the state's Division of Securities filed a legal claim to get the men behind the suspicious scheme to do something rare, pay Mardell Sanders her money back. But the whole affair cost the family hundreds of hours and years of stress, all to undo something that might have been nipped in the bud at the bank. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Coming up, a war injury meant he lost nearly all of his eyesight, but this Colorado artist hasn't lost his vision. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. During the Vietnam War, Jim Stevens was shot in the head. He survived. But decades later, the injury caused Stevens to lose nearly all his eyesight. It's like he's looking through a pinhole. Despite being legally blind, he's made a name for himself as an artist. His studio's in Wheat Ridge, west of Denver, and Stevens has a solo exhibition in Denver's Santa Fe Arts District through December. Stevens spoke with my colleague Nathan Heffel earlier this year. Jim, welcome to the program. Thank you. Explain how your war injury triggered vision loss more than 20 years after the fact. I tell everybody that the uh, Army taught me everything except how to duck. Either I slept through that class. Uh, The bullet fragment in my head uh, combined with a migraine and moved and cut off the supply, blood supply to my visual cortex. And it happened very quickly. I lost my sight in about 30 minutes. Did you ever think that was a possibility following the injury? Absolutely not. Just it was a big surprise. So, of course, that rocks your world when, when that happens. You lost your vision. You retired from teaching at the University of Colorado. Your marriage ended, and you became a single parent. You say for many years you were you're pretty angry about all of that and, and didn't know what to do with yourself, but then you turned to martial arts, and that had a big impact on your life. How so? I had enrolled one of my daughters uh, in martial arts, and uh, my youngest told me one day that, uh, Dad, the martial arts has been very good for Sarah, I'll bet it could be good for you, too. And I felt about an inch tall and thought, okay, she's probably right, and went down there and asked if he could teach a blind man what he was teaching my daughter. And he did? He did. He did. And was it the, the stability of that, that that helped you move through this? After about two years of that training, um, my daughters again came to me and said, Dad, you need to be doing something. You've never sat around before. Um, we think you should get back into your art. And uh, my sensei at the dojo also said, yes, you should get back to your art. And I told all of them, can't see. Right. But I spent the next two years, very frustrating two years, punching holes in canvases, throwing things across the room. Um, Two years until I finally was able to figure out how to do my art again without the sight that I had. And you never went to art school. I had the good fortune of being able to study at the elbow of masters. I... My grandmother was a brilliant watercolorist, and she taught me to draw and paint. Um, I worked with Ed Dwight, the sculptor that uh, has done the Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. in City Park. I worked with him, learned sculpture from him uh, when he did his 12-foot bronze of Martin Luther King that stands at Morehouse College. And then I had the great opportunity to study with the Russian master stone and gem carver Vasily Konovalenko. Uh, And it's been that, that... expanded background studying with masters that gave me my love of art. 
Now, it, it's, I want to note that you can still see very, very slightly. You say it's a pinhole that, that you can see left of your sight. How did, how did you find a way to do art with such limited vision? In frustration, I started experimenting with lenses to try to help with my technical abilities. And, and uh, now when I work, I actually switch back and forth constantly between five different lenses. Huh. Some will bring things a little closer. Some will minify and push things away. Uh, but when I'm working, I literally have to scan. I have to piece together things uh, that make sure the, one, the part that I have just completed fits with the next part that I'm working on. And, and what you do is called monofilament paintings. And it, describe exactly what that is because it's a unique concept. I, I have always enjoyed art that engages. And my monofilament paintings are paintings that people actually move around as if they were sculptures. And it's 129 strands across, eight layers deep of hand-painted monofilament line inside a clear acrylic case. Each layer is painted, shaded slightly differently than the layer in front, so it grabs the eye, pulls it down, and through all eight layers. And, and, and for lack of a better word, it's almost like fish wire, like, like your fishing wire. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Each strand is anchored inside that acrylic case with sterling silver. When it comes to art, you often speak about empty space. What exactly is that, and, and why does it fascinate you so much, and why do you put that in, in your paintings? I see in, in empty space, and I paint the way that I see. Uh, to look at my work, you're actually looking at a realistic portrait of someone, but you're actually seeing that portrait through empty space. Hmm. And empty space becomes as much of a brush to me as the brush in my hand. The, the lack of color in that sense, the lack of anything there. I, I often leave negative space uh, see-through so that you're actually looking through and around, but the but the image comes together within that space. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Wheat Ridge artist Jim Stevens. His artwork is very intricate, and it's meticulous process here. Stevens' art career didn't take off, though, until after he lost nearly all of his vision. His line of sight is about the size of a pinhole. Jim, has art, in a way, helped you work through the emotions of losing your vision so late in life? I have to say that... uh I was angry for a long time after I lost my sight. Didn't exactly know how to cope with that. I guess there's a process that everyone goes through in trauma. And I couldn't get out of the anger stage. My daughters, I think, knew better than I did that if I got busy with something that I loved, it would help. And what happened was I got, and it started getting commission after commission after commission. I started getting so busy with my art that I actually forgot to be angry. I just was so busy, I forgot to be angry. Now, now there, there must still be moments of, of frustration and anger, right? Yeah, especially when I walk into a door jam or, uh, you know, I could, yeah. trip on the stairs. <laughs> so how are you working through that? Is that through the art then? You're, you're, you're working through that through art? Or is it just always going to be there, do you think? I, I think in a lot of respects it's always going to be there. But when, when we have something, uh, you know, pretty awful happen to us, uh, you end up with a choice, and my choice has been to uh, smile and get on with life because that's what needs to be done. How did you become fascinated with monofilament? How, how did that come about? 
I have to thank my six-year-old grandson. Six-year-old grandson. Yeah. He, uh, he's very proud to tell everybody that he gave Papa the idea. Uh, I was helping him untangle his fishing pole one day, his t- little toy fishing pole, yeah. and uh, wasn't doing a very good job of it, but the clouds went over and caused the monofilament on my fingers to ripple. Hmm. I could not get that thought out of my head. And I spent the next five months, trial and error, throwing things, much wailing and gnashing of teeth, until I finally created art from that concept. So does your, is your grandson, you said, is that right? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. He's my inspiration. He's your inspiration. <laughs> is, has he, has he been a subject of your, of your artwork before? Uh, he's been both subject and, uh, I would say, you know, my biggest catalyst, uh, he comes out to my studio all the time and wants to know what I'm doing. And you do other forms of art as well, not just this monofilament. Um, with my background being so varied, I enjoy sculpture. I enjoy, I enjoy carving. I enjoy scrimshaw. And scrimshaw, uh, what is that? The etching on bone. Mm. Uh, it originally was the etching on ivory, uh, but it's etching on different materials. You also recently learned that you won a first place prize in this year's National Veterans Creative Arts Competition. How is it uh, the accolades for your work? How is that affecting you in a sense? It's been amazing. Um, Last year, my work uh, took first place Best of Show at the Best of Santa Fe in Denver, uh, Best of Show at uh, the Boulder Art Association's annual Labor Day Art Show. I also won uh, nationally the Sergeant Art Supply Company first place award for art for 2015. Jim, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Wheat Ridge artist Jim Stevens, who is legally blind. He spoke with CPR's Nathan Heffel. You can see his work at Georgia Amar's Habitat Gallery and Studio. That's in Denver's Santa Fe Arts District through the end of the year. You can see photos of Stevens at work in his studio at cprnews.org. A new album, a headlining debut at Red Rocks, surviving a tour bus fire. 2016 has been a memorable year for the Netherland folk band Elephant Revival. To cap the band's marquee year, they'll join the Colorado Symphony this weekend for a collaborative performance. For a preview, two of the band members, cellist Bonnie Payne and fiddler Bridget Law, recently stopped by the CPR Performance Studio with musicians from the symphony. Here they are with the tune Flight Patterns. what it sounds like when you mix Elephant Revival from Netherlands and the Colorado Symphony. And this is what Colorado Matters sounds like. Thanks for listening. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.